ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. We find the defendant guilty. I'm most grateful for Alberto because if it weren't for him, she wouldn't have, have been caught. I can remember his smile, his, uh, his warmth, and his caring. Oh, you're recording? Oh, well, I mean, that just explains my week right now, <laughs> we're, guys. We're recording. Yeah. Mic's Welcome. on. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is our one-year anniversary, guys. Yeah. We're currently drinking champagne. Yeah, champagne. 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 Which explains why we're in silly, goofy mood. A loosey-goosey mood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dancing. And, well, <laughs> yes, listeners, she's dancing. <laughs> if you couldn't tell because it's a podcast, not a video. <laughs> but we actually have not been recording for a month. Yeah. And, and dude, Amber said that to me and I was like, holy shit, dude, an entire month, which it doesn't, it feels like that long, but not that long, but we both went on vacations on the exact same week. Yeah. And we busted our asses, like you said before. Yeah. We, we, went. we kicked ass, took names and, um, <laughs> recorded so many episodes yeah. beforehand. And then we decided that for 4th of July, everybody just needed a break, including you guys. So we didn't post then, but we're back. We're better than ever, and we're ready to. And we're kick one some more. year young. One year young. Yay! Or old? Is it is it better to say that a podcast is is older than? Yeah, probably. I feel like more experienced. You know, yeah. we're one year better than we were last year. We're one second better than we were like <laughs> two seconds ago. Oh, true. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this week is my week, and I'm excited to share this with you guys. So we are actually going to take this story to Sacramento, California, you know, and um, it's going to be a slow burn, just fair warning, but it's based in the 80s. So mm. yeah, rustic. I like it, rustic. <laughs> now, Sacramento in the mid 80s, it was still considered pretty violent by the people who were living there because it was so close to Los Angeles that there was still a lot of gang activity in the neighborhoods. Sacramento at the time, it was still growing, but it had a small town feel all at the same time. Neighborhoods in the area were expanding, but there was still a lot of people going in and out of the state capital just from traveling or trying to go to, you know, San Francisco. Just traveling throughout California in the 80s was just normal. In the mid 80s, there was actually a huge spike in homicide rates. And because it was a growing town, it almost made it impossible to solve any of these crimes. And by the late 80s, this is when Sacramento residents were also noticing an increase in the number of homeless people. They would just kind of roam the downtown streets a lot. And a lot of homeless people would actually go to California because they had a lot of homelessness programs available, just assisting the homeless and the, the mentally ill. One of these programs was actually called the Volunteers of America. One of the social workers for the Volunteers of America, her name was Judy Moyes. Her job was to help the people who are not getting services on the street and who are living homelessly or mentally ill. One of the men that Judy was helping was a 51-year-old schizophrenic named 
Alberto Gonzalez Montoya, whose nickname was Bert. Bert was considered a good guy, just in a very dark place in his life. Judy took it upon herself to find a home for Bert, and she did. She found a place in Sacramento, which was in a downtown boarding house, often used by other social workers who would accommodate hard-to-manage clients. So these are the ones that have, you know, the harder illnesses or who's been homeless for years and years and years and just not subject to change. Those are the hard-to-manage clients. This address was 1426 F Street, and it was a large blue and white Victorian home, a beautiful home with a landscaped yard with a wonderful garden up front. This landlord's name was Dorothea Puente. While Judy was trying to find this home and coordinate with Dorothea, she mentioned that Dorothea was in her 70s and was actually a nurse during the Battle of Bataan in World War II. Now, Dorothea was very well known for donating money and clothes to local charities and for hiring parolees from a local halfway house to do the yard work, which is one of the reasons why the front yard looks so nice all the time. So she was super into like rehabilitating people. Like she gave the care that it needs to people who needed it, which would be the perfect fit for the situation. So that makes sense. Especially in the 80s where, you know, criminal rates and homicides were were growing. Homelessness was also growing. So she kind of created this safe place for people like Bert. While researching this home and coordinating with Dorothea, Judy described her as having like a grandmotherly concern for her tenants. This boarding house, however, was very popular with the social workers and other social agencies because she opened her arms to all different types of individuals. Some of them had alcoholic problems, drug issues, mental health and emotional problems. It didn't really matter. She would take them all in. Most of her clientele were, in fact, elderly people with a long list of health issues. I'm going to kind of just describe some of the clients that she did have in this boarding home. James Gallup was a 62-year-old man who had a brain tumor. Dorothy Miller was another tenant. She was 64 years old and an alcoholic. Betty Palmer and Leona Carpenter were both in their late 70s, and they were unable to fend for themselves. They were just incapable of doing so. All of these people were also receiving numerous types of benefits, including social security. Dorothea was very intelligent and knew how to work the system. So if she noticed that one of her clients were not getting enough money for their illnesses, she offered to help. When she would step in, she let them have the possibility of getting more money and she would work the system for them to get them exactly what they deserve. All of these people that were previously mentioned were currently gone and moved out of the home before Bert moved in on February 3rd, 1988. When Bert moved in, there was another boardie who was 62 years old. She was only staying for about two days before she left without mentioning a word. Because they are technically homeless or elderly people and they aren't really paying rent and most of them do have other, you know, health issues or other related illnesses, 
It wasn't very uncommon for these tenants to just go in and out of the boarding home. They didn't really have any obligation to Dorothea. They could move in one day and then just get up and leave the next or even just move into another facility and be gone for a few days before coming back, but their bed would always remain there whenever they needed. It's basically like just a safe space that they could always have. And just like you said, no obligation. So if they went out and did their own thing, if they needed to come back and be safe and know that they could be there, they were always welcome to like come back. Yeah, absolutely. Bert, as well as all the other tenants, lived on the first floor of the home. They all had their own room. And next to Bert was a 64-year-old retired cook who didn't drink, but his neighbor was a 55-year-old male who made a living life out of it. So all types of people here. You don't necessarily have to have an illness or an, an issue per se, but if you are just homeless and you need a place to stay, there's a door. Benjamin Fink was the 55-year-old alcoholic. He had a very long history of checking into the ER with high alcoholic levels. He would go on binges and was pretty much a real heavy drinker. That's all he wanted to do. In April of 1988, Benjamin also decided to disappear and move out of the home. His social worker was not surprised because, again, he would constantly go in and out of these binges. After a while, Benjamin didn't return. So once he was gone, another tenant moved into the boarding home. However, Bert was still there. He's starting to warm up to Dorothea just a little bit more. His original social worker, Judy, came back to check on him, and when she did, she noticed something very odd, but wonderful. He had a haircut, he was very well-mannered, he was clean and well-dressed. Judy was so ecstatic that this boarding house was in fact working out for him, and he was getting the help that he needed. Over the summer in 1988, Bert also continues to thrive, and Judy is very confident that everything's going to work out for him. However, in November of 1988, Sacramento police got a call from a woman who wants to file a missing persons report on Bert himself. This person is, in fact, Judy. This was not too many months after she saw him thriving and he was only living in the boarding home for about six months before his disappearance. November 7th, 1988, Sacramento, California police officer Richard Ewing met with street counselor Judy. She tells the officer that one of her clients, which again was 51-year-old schizophrenic Bert, had been missing for several weeks. Judy mentioned that his disappearance from the boarding house where he was living just didn't make sense. She also told police that she was concerned because one of the staff in her office stated, guess what happened? And she had no idea. The staff member mentioned, Alberto went with the room and board people down to Mexico to visit Dorothea's doctor brother. Judy told police that when she called Dorothea, she was, in fact, assured that Bert would return in a few days and he did go down to Mexico. However, it has been several weeks since that incident and Judy informed Dorothea that she is ready to bring in the police. Only a few days later, this is when Judy received a phone call at work and when she answered the phone, it was a strange man. I answered the phone and this man said, uh, hello, this is Don Anthony. I mean... 
Michelle Obregon. And I have uh, Alberto with me. He's my nephew. And he is with me in um, Utah. We're in Shreveport, Utah. This phone call was so strange that Judy decided to call Dorothea to again confirm. Of course, just like before, Dorothea is reassuring Judy that the story is in fact true and everything's all good and Bert is completely fine. And she said, well, you know what? Sunday while I was at mass, uh, a relative of his came by and just packed him up and took him, left a note for me. And I said, uh-huh, yeah, well, listen, I'm calling the police because the story had a lot of holes in it and she was obviously covering. After Judy's phone call with Dorothea, of course she raised her eyebrows at how Dorothea's reaction was. She urged police to go to the boarding home and of course this was Officer Ewing. I told him that there was a person that was living in the home named John Sharp and that he was a person that he could get the correct information from John didn't have a mental illness. He wasn't an alcoholic like the other uh, residents. And I felt that he would give him a, a, the true version of whatever did happen. So uh, Officer Ewing went over to Dorothea's home shortly after that. There was a knock on the boarding house door. And of course, Dorothea answers. She finds Officer Ewing. Officer Ewing described Dorothea to be the most helpful and super gracious woman that he's ever met at this time. She was answering all of his questions, even talks to John Sharp, which was, of course, Judy's person that she mentioned would give Officer Ewing the facts. John does, in fact, confirm that Bert did leave with a relative the previous morning, and this was enough to satisfy the officer but they didn't really have anything else to go off of, so he decided to leave. Before Officer Ewing is about to leave the premises, this is when John decides to step out and approach him. One of the tenants passed him a note, and on the note, it uh, asked the officer to meet him at another location because he had something to tell the officer. So the officer uh, subsequently met that particular tenant away from everybody else. And that tenant told him that uh, Dorothea had asked the tenants to lie and to say that Bert had left with relatives. So the vibe that I'm getting is that Dorothea is somehow installing fear into these tenants. That's that I need to know because it's, it's killing me because she's like an elderly lady and I just need to know how she's making these people feel so yeah. feared. Well, I mean, she's in her 70s, and, like, could you really imagine, like, this 70-year-old woman just, like, hacking people? No. Exactly. So uh, for the officers, it's kind of like, if it's not Dorothea, then who is it in the home, you know? Like, who, it has to be somebody this? in the home. Yeah, like, is she protecting somebody or what? That's kind of what they were thinking because they couldn't wrap their head around it. While talking to Officer Ewing, John also mentions that he was hearing strange things in the home, one of which he described it sounded like something being dragged down the stairs. This was the same night 
that Ben Fink had moved out. He also mentioned that he noticed a like strong smell coming from the room upstairs and it was so bad he couldn't sleep. He told the officer that there were suspicious holes dug in the yard and that he thought people were being buried in the yard. He had a suspicion of that. After speaking to Lieutenant John Sharp, Officer Ewing contacted a sergeant whose name was John Cabrera. He was of missing persons and homicide. Shortly after that, our Sergeant Cabrera found a few interesting facts about Dorothea. I want to know. I had a hunch. So who is Dorothea? Well, she was born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California to Trudy May and Jesse James Gray. She did have a very traumatic upbringing and her parents were both alcoholics. Her father repeatedly threatened to commit suicide in front of his children and he passed away of tuberculosis in 1937. Her mom lost custody of her children in 1938 and then passed away from a motorcycle accident by the end of that same year. Dorothea and her siblings were pretty much sent to an orphanage where she was constantly sexually abused. So she did not have such a great upbringing whatsoever. I mean, this is just a full-on assumption, but the fact that Dorothea brings in people with alcoholism and other problems like that, and then knowing that her parents were like that, and ultimately, because her parents were alcoholics, she suffered so much abuse. It makes me feel like maybe if she is the one murdering these people with these issues that she's like taking revenge out on people who have those kinds of issues because you know her parents yeah and that's a completely you know different dynamic from what the community had of her i mean most of them kind of knew who she was but didn't really know her background so they thought she was a saint They thought that she was helping these people. So another dynamic of Dorothea was that maybe her parents were alcoholic abusers and that's why she wants to help these people. So it could go hand in hand with why she's either doing, you know, the murdering or or not, but it definitely plays a part. Dorothea's first marriage was at the age of 16. It was in 1945, and it was to a soldier named Fred McFall. He had just returned from the Pacific Theater of World War II. Now, Dorothea had two daughters between 1946 and 48. She sent one child to live with relatives in Sacramento and placed the other for adoption. Now, McFall left her in late 1948 after she suffered a miscarriage. In the spring of 1948, though, she was arrested for purchasing women's accessories using forged checks in Riverside. She was charged and pled guilty to two counts of forgery, and she served four months in jail and three years probation. Six months after her release, she left Riverside. In 1952, Dorothea married another man who was a seaman named Axel Bren Johansson. He was enlisted and lived in San Francisco. Now, Dorothea at this time created a fake persona and called herself Taya Singola Nayarta. She claimed to be of a Muslim from Egypt 
and Israeli descent. Now, Axel and her had a very strange marriage. Dorothea would take advantage of his frequent trips to sea by inviting men into their home and gambling away all of his money. Dorothea was arrested again in 1960 for owning and operating a brothel under the guise of a bookkeeping firm in Sacramento. She was found guilty and was sentenced to 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail. Granted, it was in 1960. In 1961, Axel and Dorothea were briefly committed to Dewitt State Hospital after a binge of drinking, lying, criminal behavior, and suicide attempts. Now, while they were there, doctors diagnosed her as a pathological liar with an unstable personality. These two both divorced in 1966, and although she would continue to use his last name for some things time to time after their separation, she assumed the identity of Sharon Johansson, hiding her delinquent behavior by portraying herself as a kind Christian woman. She established her reputation as a caregiver, and she was providing young women with a sanctuary from poverty and abuse without anything in return. In 1968, Dorothea then married Roberto Jose Puente. After 16 months, the couple separated and Dorothea was citing domestic abuse as the main reason for their divorce. In 1967, she attempted to serve him with a divorce petition, but Puente fled to Mexico. So this divorce wouldn't be finalized until 1973. Even after the divorce, Dorothea and Roberto would still continue to have a relationship, but Dorothea finally filed a restraining order against him in 1975. So she was just up and down in relationships the whole entire middle of her life. After 1975, Dorothea just decided to go as Dorothea Puente for more than 20 years, but her disguise didn't stop there. Then you start doing all the checks that you can, you know, driver's license, all of the uh, uh, primary checks. Well, the first thing I found is that she was on federal parole for forgery of social security checks and also for putting stupefying drugs in her victims' uh, drinks. Detective Cabrera also discovered that on at least four occasions throughout 1981 and 82, Dorothea posed as a nurse who also drugged her elderly patients in order to steal their jewelry, blank checks, and their credit cards. They arrested her in late April of 1982, and they found a ticket to Mexico in her purse. She was only sentenced to five years in prison and was released in 1985 for good behavior, which is when she moved back onto the house on F Street, where she lived there before her conviction. So that's the boarding home. Things started to become a little bit more clear that this could be, you know, right in line with the person missing. He was receiving Social Security money. Uh, nobody knew his whereabouts. Cabrera discovers something else. According to her file, Dorothea Puente is only 59 years old. She lied to Judy Moyes and told her she was in her 70s. And she had, uh, she had no teeth, so without her teeth, 
And with her silver hair, she could look much older than she was. A state psychologist who evaluated Dorothea before her release from prison in 1985 actually diagnosed her as schizophrenic. This psychologist stated, This woman is a disturbed woman who does not appear to have remorse or regret for what she has done. He also stated, and I quote, She is to be considered dangerous and her living environment and or employment should be closely monitored. Wait a minute. So was anybody assigned to make sure that a dangerous person is being monitored like the person suggested? Well, so the following year, and she did all of this without a license, and she was still in violation of her like federal probation. So she was on probation, but she opened up that boarding house on probation, and it was enough space to have as many as like eight tenants in there, but federal probation officers were visiting her numerous times within the next two years, and they never suspected that she ran a business. They were just so, I guess, distracted by her being so kind. She had a, you know, a nice clean facade. Her home was big and it was just, you know, it, it, she tricked everybody. Detective Cabrera decided to connect with Judy again about his findings on Dorothea. So then Detective Cabrera said, so, so what is it you want us to do? I said, I want you to go to the house. He said, do you want us to bring shovels? I said, sure. Friday, November 11th came, still in 1988, and homicide detectives John Cabrera and his partner Terry Brown, as well as a parole agent whose name was James Wilson, arrived at Dorothea's boarding home to question her. I explained to her why we were there because of the report with Bert Montoya. And uh, she didn't seem mad or she didn't seem uh, upset about anything. She just said, oh yeah, you know, and she mentioned Judy Moise and that Bert had gone with relatives. And Dorothea was very believable in anything she said. She would look straight at you, tell you exactly you know, what she was thinking or what she had to say. And uh, she didn't even flinch a moment when I asked her to search her house. I checked everything. I looked under beds. I tapped the walls, you know, but I had to keep in mind that Bert was a rather big person. So uh, if he was going to be stuffed somewhere, it would be pretty obvious. Detective Cabrera didn't find anything linking Dorothea to Bert's disappearance. However... He did find two prescription bottles in her room, one of which was an untapped plastic vial that was filled with like blue capsules in it, and the other was an empty container that he found on the floor. And I looked at it, and it had the name of Dorothy Miller. And so I took that pill vial, I went back out into the living room where Dorothea was sitting with uh, the other officers, and I said, who's Dorothy Miller? And I remember her telling me Dorothy Miller was a relative of hers. You know, and she had come and visited with her and probably left that behind. Um, usually when someone leaves something from that long ago, it's not out in the open, just chilling yeah. there. Yeah, and not to mention, I mean, as previously mentioned, Dorothy Miller was in fact a tenant and not related in any way, shape, or form 
of Dorothea. Yeah, she was one of the tenants in the beginning of the story yeah. when you're listing off all the people. So yeah, that's not a relative at all. This search wasn't super thorough. I mean, it was just pretty basic because they didn't really have a search warrant. It was, hey, how are you doing? Can I ask you some questions? Would you mind coming in? It wasn't, you know, court appointed. During this time, Detective Cabrera, obviously knowing that it wasn't court appointed and Dorothea could have stopped this at any point, he asked her if they could do some digging in her yard. I remember her kind of asking, you know, why I wanted to dig in the yard. And I told her, well, you know, I had some information that uh, maybe the, somebody was buried there. She didn't even flinch. She said, oh, yeah, you know, please feel free. She even assisted us by getting us another shovel. Detective Cabrera stated that getting Dorothea's permission was vital to his investigation because he wasn't supposed to be there by court orders. Now, had he have not gotten her permission... They would have had nothing to go off of, and all the evidence that they did obtain was strictly circumstantial, including Dorothy Miller's pill bottle. And uh, we didn't need a search warrant at that particular time. We started digging into three particular areas in this little garden area. And it was about maybe 40 minutes, 45 minutes later, we started pulling up articles out of one of the holes that looked to be like a material. And then we had this pile of leather-looking uh, small discs uh, that, that accompanied the find of this material. As the officers dig further, they hit a tree root they cannot dislodge with their shovels. I climbed into the hole, and I kept pulling on it and pulling on it. And then eventually it broke loose. And when I'm sitting in the back of this hole and I'm looking down at this object in my hand, it's not a tree root. It was a human bone, is what it appeared to me. And that was the beginning. Once they realized that this was not a tree root, it was, in fact, human remains, one of the detectives also figured that they caught Dorothea red-handed. The detectives decided to ask Dorothea about their findings, and they described that this moment was one of the worst acting that Dorothea could ever have done. We brought her down, walked her over to the hole and said, take a look there. You know, and she gave it one of these, <gasps> you know, she gasped and oh my gosh, and she became real nervous and uh, kind of upset. And she didn't know what to think and didn't know anything about this. And, uh, and she was very believable. Do you want to know what the detectives found in her dirt? I do. It was... A bone from a human leg, a foot encased in a shoe, and two types of other material, one of which was light and soft, and the other was tough and coarse. We determined that the cloth material appeared to look like what, what might have been a dress or some type of blouse item. After the discovery of the human remains, there was a deputy coroner whose name was Laura Santos. She came to the scene. When she got there, she told detectives to wait until a proper forensics unit could come through before investigating any further. We should have a, a you know, crime scene set up. Someone should guard the property at, tonight until tomorrow and everybody can regroup. And that's what was done, basically. Along with that, I requested CSI so that that particular 
CSI officer could come out and now start photographing the scene uh, and anything and everything that we deem to be evidentiary as far as uh, um, the property. The forensics unit could not come until the next day, which was Saturday, November 12th. Many F Street residents were gathering to watch this all happen because, again, it was a booming city, but they were still kind of, you know, tight-knit. On this particular day, it was actually storming, of course, and forensics unit, as well as a CSI, had a canopy over the area to protect the yard from rain. There was a crowd that surrounded the home, which included media, neighbors, and other people who were just onlookers. The area was so uh, congested with traffic and news reporters and the big satellite trucks that I remember I drove around in circles trying to find a way in. In the garden, forensic archaeologists advised the careful recovery of the delicate remains. All of the dirt that was taken out was set aside to be screened for evidence. The corpse is that of an elderly female, definitely not the body of Bert Montoya. Police decide to do more digging. Got a call on that Saturday morning from the, um, uh, the Chronicle in San Francisco. They had heard about the story and uh, uh, one of their contacts had, I believe, spoken with somebody in the police department and um, had gotten the information that um, they were gonna start a pretty major search and there was uh, potential for, for more bodies. If you look at this property, there really wasn't a whole lot of yard there but it was enough that if you had to do it by shovel, it would take you probably a considerable amount of days. So we requested a backhoe to come in and to assist us in digging the entire yard. While they start digging, Dorothea starts asking a lot of questions. She tries to speak with Detective Cabrera and she was nervous as all hell. And it was because there was a body on her property. She said, am I under arrest? Well, at that particular time, she wasn't. And so, you know, I said, well, no, you're not under arrest. And why? And she said, you know, all this is making me nervous. And I would like to go have a cup of coffee with one of my relatives just around the corner at the hotel. Dorothea was being so helpful with this investigation so far that police didn't really consider her a flight risk. In fact, they thought she might be a suspect, but didn't really have any proof that she was the one doing the crime. So she got permission to go get a cup of coffee with her relative, but Detective Cabrera escorts her through the crowd and walks her to the hotel himself. Somewhere I've got a picture of her standing there talking to Cabrera just as she was getting ready to walk away. Just a matronly little old lady. That's all she was. I mean, it just, she didn't look like she could hurt a fly. And I mean, she was just nice about everything. But I still had that feeling in the back of my head. You know, there's just something here. She's just too nice. Detective Cabrera returns back to the yard after searching for Dorothea, when he realizes how much he should have just stuck with his instincts because he knew exactly who the type of person she was. About 20 minutes after digging, they discovered another gruesome scene. And it was about 21 minutes later that I was digging in this area that I struck something. 
and I dug down deeper and I pulled. And when I did, all of a sudden, there came a lake. And at that point, I knew there was definitely something had gone on here. I stopped. I immediately yelled for my uh, commander. I remember him asking me, where's Dorothea? I said, she's over at the hotel having coffee. He ran off to get her. A few minutes later, he comes back. He says, she's gone. And I remember that sinking feeling, you know, that uh, the reason she had summoned me is because I was probably maybe two feet away from discovering that body. And she wasn't about to be there when I pulled it up. No one expected Dorothea to, to run. And it created quite the media storm at the time because um, it, it, no one knew where she'd gone. I mean, she just disappeared. Everyone is now searching for Dorothea because they are just so shocked that this tiny old woman could trick and manipulate the police. She fled the crime scene. During the search back at the house, police discovered a third body, which was being exhumed very carefully by using brushes so they wouldn't disturb the body. This body was wrapped in numerous layers of wrapping quilts, um, bedspreads, plastic, um, and some of it was stitched together. And so we couldn't see anything at that point, and we didn't want to disturb any of the evidence. Two forensic pathologists from my office came over to the site to see what the body looked like in position. And they made their own notes and things. And then the whole board with the body and all the evidence, all the wrappings was transported to the coroner's office in a van. Although a third body was exhumed, they still continued to search the yard. Only now, police were asking for any assistance with what might have went on in this boarding home. Dorothea's neighbor talked to police and stated that he recalled a weird foul smell back in May. He mentioned that it was really bad. He couldn't even use his air conditioner because it was pushing the stench into his home. When Dorothea was contacted by this neighbor, she mentioned she had just put fertilizer down in the yard and that's probably what the smell was. This neighbor, knowing how nice her yard was, took it for what it was. He also talked to police about what he found in his own backyard that same morning they started excavations he went out in the morning in the backyard and he found 24 human teeth all of them filled with silver and gold uh, fillings obviously she knew that the the heat was on could you imagine waking up in the morning going to your yard and just finding a handful of teeth human teeth yeah yeah that's crazy like you go out on your porch and you're just like holding a cup of coffee and something shining in the corner of your eye and you're like hmm is that rocks? And then you go look, and it's human teeth. Human teeth. It's kind of like Dorothea was like, okay, well, I don't have them. If I throw them over at my neighbor's yard, maybe they'll start asking him questions. Maybe he's the one that killed all these people and buried them in my yard to blame me. Yeah, and, it, and since she does have schizophrenia, that's like an excuse for her. But she still has now, what, three bodies found mm -hmm. in her backyard? Yep. You can't escape that proof. After speaking with the neighbor, 
Detective Cabrera asked social services for a copy of everyone who was placed at the boarding home within the last 18 months. Some of these names were, in fact, John Sharp, which was the man competent enough to speak with Detective Cabrera and sent him a warning to meet him outside of the home. Another one was Ben Fink. And another one of the names that the detective recognized was, in fact, Dorothy Miller, whom Dorothea stated was a relative of hers that was just visiting and must have left that pill bottle in her room. Moving on to the next day, so now we're at Sunday, November 13th, still no sign of Dorothea. So just a quick little time lapse. The 11th was when the human bones were originally found. The 12th was when excavation started and when Dorothea went missing. So now we're on the 13th, which is the Sunday. Dorothea's escape is front page news for all of Sacramento. Given that another day has passed, investigators have found two more bodies, which were also wrapped in cloth and plastic, just like the others. There were so many bodies being discovered that the stench was filling the air, and yet people were still watching all of this go down. It was like something was spoiled. I have photographs of people holding their hands up to their mouths, you know, just covering their nose so they don't smell it. Some were wearing like those little face masks. Um, so yeah, it's definitely the smell was, was in the air. It was obvious almost right from the beginning that some of them had been buried much longer than others. Some appeared to have only been buried maybe a few weeks to a couple of months. Some appeared to have been buried for a year or two. The rates of decomposition were greatly different. While they can determine the stages of decomposition and everything else, these detectives were also not dumb. They knew that this elderly woman could not dig these holes all by herself. We would discover the parolees from the halfway house came and dug the holes, but they didn't have any idea what was really going to be put in the holes. She paid them cash. They went about their way. Um, there was nothing unusual as far as the holes being dug. One of the parolees was Don Anthony, which was the same man who called Judy, posing as Bert Montoya's relative, saying he was visiting him in Utah. All of this is starting to link Dorothea to Bert's disappearance even more. On Monday, November 14th, police pulled down a shed in the middle of her backyard. They found a shallow grave underneath, and later that day, they uncovered another body in the front. The picture that stands out the most in my mind is a photograph that I took of a uh, city worker uh, digging in the front yard, and he was digging right next to a statue of the Virgin Mary. I thought it was really ironic that this person was buried right underneath this statue. And uh, what was uh, different about this particular body is that the remains had no head, no hands, and no feet. The reason for cutting off her head, hands, and feet were if by some chance someone did find the body, they wouldn't know who it was. Moving on to Tuesday, November 15th, which is three days after Dorothea goes missing, police got a search warrant to go back inside of the boarding house. We were able to gather up uh, somewhere probably over 300 items of evidence uh, from the outside and the interior of the boarding house. I found a book right on the table, and the book was Drugs and Their Effects. So basically, 
I just looked at it as this was Dorothea's cookbook. And then along on the, on the kitchen table, I found a driver's license. And the driver's license had Dorothea's picture on it, but not Dorothea's name. So she had already gone to the point where she was changing driver's license belonging to her victims and putting her picture on it. In a guest room, Detective Cabrera experiences the odor that Tenant John Sharp first noticed in May. Apparently, this is the room she kept her victims in. And they might have been there up to a week, maybe two weeks. And the body fluids would uh, penetrate the carpet and then down into the floor. And this is what created a very foul smell. And when we rolled the carpet back, it was very, very bad. I mean, it was just amazing that these things were just laid out in the open. Because, you know, there was no question. I believe she never thought she was going to be found out. Wednesday, November 16th, 1988, police are still conducting a nationwide hunt for Dorothea. This time, residents and people from all over the world were showing up, some of which included Korea and Japan. They were very invested in this story for some reason. Just a little fun fact of the day. But this was because they discovered so far, a total of seven bodies in her home. Media from all over the world started showing up. We had uh, TV crews from Germany and Japan, um, England. The discovery of seven bodies just blocks from Sacramento's Capitol building has also captured the imagination of local residents. One point, the, the, the full city block in front of her house there on F Street was shoulder to shoulder with people from sidewalk to sidewalk. Kids in their parochial school uniforms, uh, Sacramento lobbyists on their luncheon breaks. And if everybody's standing out there, they began to decorate their houses with Nightmare on F Street posters. It was, it was a circus. Back at the Sacramento coroner's office, an autopsy begins on the first victim found. One of the first things that was identified was that leather-like material that was dug up originally, you know, the hard and coarse material. Well, this is going to come to a surprise. They said, you know what that stuff was? I said, no, they said, it was just the flesh. It'd come off the, you know, it was petrifying. It was come off the body. Yeah, it made me uh, kind of uh, cringe. Uh, for a moment. The usual means of identification of victims in a case like this is number one, fingerprints, number two, dental records. But in this case, most of the bodies were too decomposed to do fingerprints. And all but one of the, the victims um, did not have any teeth. We actually received an offer of help from the Social Security Department. And one of their agents from San Francisco offered to give us a list of everyone who had received Social Security benefits at that address for the past three or four years. So this list, it had all of the people who were receiving the Social Security benefits, but it doesn't actually tell them who technically received the money because they were all just sent to an address and it was, you know, referring to a person, but it doesn't mean that person cashed those checks. Now, of course, all of the detectives are thinking that Dorothea was, in fact, cashing these checks for herself. She just made it a point when their checks came at the end of each month, she went out and got the mail 
and then she would bring the money in, and then she told her tenants that she would take care of their money. Some tenants on the list have not been living at the boarding house for more than a year, including Vera Faye Martin, Dorothy Miller, James Gallup, and Leona Carpenter. Betty Palmer has not been seen for more than two years, yet their benefit checks still come to the F Street address because no one has reported them missing. Dorothea Puente chose her victims carefully. She chose people to live there who didn't have a lot of contact with their families or didn't have any family at all, and they were isolated. And so most of them had no one that was looking for them. Although most of her clientele were older or homeless, or they didn't really have a lot of family to go back on, there was one resident whose family members were still looking for them. Detective Cabrera received a phone call inquiring about 77-year-old Everson Gilmuth. He has not been in contact with his family since late 1985 after leaving for California to get married. Guess who his bride was? Dorothea Puente. What makes this most interesting is the fact that during this period from 1986 to 1988, she was still in contact with his family through letters, always telling them about how she and Everson was doing things and traveling and all of this. In fact, it wasn't until this case had hit the news media that the family made contact with me wanting to know how their father was. I didn't quite know what they were t referring to or what they were talking about. Detective Cabrera was contacted by a William Clausen, otherwise known as Bill, about another suspicious death which might have occurred at the same boarding house. Except this happened six years ago. The victim was his mom, Ruth Monroe. Detective Cabrera learned that in 1982, Ruth was a 61-year-old grandmother that didn't want to live alone after her husband was hospitalized with terminal cancer. A friend offered her a solution because Ruth and her were partners in a previous catering business, so she decided to offer up her own home. Again, making all of the connections, this person for Ruth's partnership and offering to house her was in fact Dorothea. And the address was the same boarding house on F Street. My brother and I moved her in on Easter Sunday and I stopped by every day after work. I'd go by and see her. About two weeks went by and then uh, I noticed my mom had a drink in her hand and she didn't drink. So I asked her what it was and she said that Dorothea had fixed her a drink to calm her down. Oh no. Her cookbook. I'm going to assume it's her cookbook. It's her cookbook. It's going to be her cookbook. Have you learned nothing about this podcast, Molly? Bill stated the night of April 27th, 1982, he visited his mom, Ruth, but this time she was in bed and she was unable to move or speak. He thought really nothing of it. He just thought, maybe you're catching a cold and you needed some rest. I kind of sat on the edge of the bed, put my hand on her, kind of pulled her down a little bit and told her that she was, she'd be okay, that Dorothea was taking care of her, you know, everything was okay. And then I left. 
The next morning, I got a phone call that she was dead. Well, the autopsy report came back as undetermined overdose, classified as a suicide. And so the coroner showed up and investigated and found that uh, Ruth allegedly had died from this overdose of uh, a mixture of, uh, you know, drugs. And so there wasn't any reason to suspect that any foul play had taken place because what Dorothea had told the authorities is that Ruth Monroe at that particular time was a very depressed person, contrary to later on we would find from her family that that wasn't so. She was upbeat, she was happy, and then the next minute she's dead, and then here's Dorothea telling authorities, oh, uh, she was a very depressed person. Detective Cabrera looks more into this crime and realizes that at the time of Ruth's stay, in April of 1982, Dorothea was about to go to prison for drugging elderly patients. She needed to escape, and Ruth was already a source of cash, which would have paid for the ticket to Mexico, which was found in her purse at the time of her original arrest. This officially allowed detectives to change Ruth's death to an official homicide. Now, Dorothy, again, circling back, she's still on the run, but detectives are following leads every chance they get. On Wednesday, November 16th, LA Police Department received a call from a local bureau of network news. A retired handyman contacted the network claiming that he just spent the afternoon in a bar with the woman in question by Sacramento police. He thinks it is Dorothea. During this time that they were together, the subject of conversation was him receiving social security benefits. And so he called the authorities and uh, they went out to where he knew she was staying. At 10.20 p.m., Los Angeles police approach a room at a local motel. A woman answers the door. And at first, she gave them a different name when they asked who she was. But they didn't buy into that, and they wanted to know, you know, see some ID or something along that line. And it was at that time she just said, okay, my name is Dorothea Puente. She wasn't very talkative, but uh, she was very open about, you know, her cashing the victim's checks. And, and I remember her apologizing, but she was very adamant about uh, cashing the checks, but not killing anybody. Somebody had called me and told me that they were bringing her in. So I went out to the executive airport, and that's where they brought her in. They got her handcuffed and just little old grandma-looking type. You know, that uh, wouldn't think she could do anything. There is, however, enough circumstantial evidence to charge Dorothea Puente for the murder of Bert Montoya. I don't think anybody ever lost any sleep over Dorothea Puente being on the lam. People never took this case seriously in terms of what it was, which was mass murder. Now, she was taken in by police, but she wasn't officially charged. While she was at the police station, they decided to go ahead and interview her. Now, the questions we need to ask you, I need... I need, I need all the truth from you, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, number one is, going back, of course, you know how this whole thing got started. 
was because of this last individual, right. Montoya. Right. Now his disappearance is very suspicious. I can tell you that. Um, even the things that you said uh, didn't even quite uh, connect with what the other individual told us when she spoke to you. There were a lot of inconsistencies in your statement. Well, you know, I didn't think I was ever going to have to remember everything. And, That's and fine. I mean, I can understand that you explained that to us. But there's just a lot of inconsistencies. Uh, well, also, if they get in touch with you, I mean, wouldn't that? I have to. I'd have to physical see. Right. Right. Now, as far as uh, uh, the uh, the social worker, uh, he had no relatives known to her and never mentioned of any. But he had mentioned at one time that he wanted to move from your place. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to stay there anymore. And uh, then we talked to Mr. Sharp. Mm -hmm. and Mr. Sharp says he hasn't seen him for three months. But you said the other day. Yeah, and the social worker hasn't seen him. So who is lying to me? Who is lying to me, Dorothea? Well, I'm not. He was there Saturday and Sunday. How can Mr. Sharp... Well, he doesn't, he doesn't even associate with the other people. Mr. Sharp also told us that you had told him to lie. I did not. About saying that he was there because he later told us that I you did told him not. to lie. In fact, I, I had asked Mr. Sharp to move. Mr. Sharp says that Ben was missing the same time as Montoya. The social worker says she was up in contact with Montoya up till about three months ago. Okay. Uh, and she says she has not heard hide nor hair from him. Well, he really didn't want to see them. But he'd always, he'd, he'd attempted to, he went to detox on an occasion. Twice. Yeah, and he told him at detox, take me out of your home. I don't want to live there. And the social worker was on very good terms with him to where she was. Yes, Judy. Right, and when he all of a sudden disappeared, she started thinking, what the heck's going on here? And then she got the inconsistent things about, you tell me that the guy was from, uh, you didn't know where he went, and then she got a phone call, and she says that you told her he went to Utah. I mean, there's well, a lot of well, things, I Dorothea, that I, I don't understand. Things. I don't know where the man was going to take him. Okay, but I mean, there's a lot. You see what I'm saying? There's a lot of inconsistencies there. Uh, and it can't explain his disappearance. It can't. Either either John McCauley or, or Mer, what is it, Melvin? Mervin. Mervin. John. Either killed him. Or that maybe he met foul play by your hands. That's, that's, that's my alternatives. I don't know. But my other alternative is that the fact that somewhere in that backyard, Dorothea, that he's lying, maybe along with other people. No. Monday, can I hire a, a contractor to go in and tear everything down and dig it up to prove to you that there's nobody there? If, there, if there any digging has to be done, we're going to do the digging. Oh, okay. 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 What I'm trying to do is right now save a lot of painstaking trouble, a lot of time and a lot of trouble. And, and what I'm asking you, my bottom line, is what I'm truly asking you, Dorothea. Sir, I have never killed anybody. Maybe not you, but how about Mr. McCauley? What reason would he have to kill anybody? Well, I know we're going to find out if uh, about the checks, okay, the mm -hmm. Social Security checks. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're past, you know, you've been in right. some trouble with, right. okay? Right. And I know I remember when you were arrested and you were in the beam. Do that. I admitted to that to get the trial over with. Okay, but you still were convicted right. of it and sentenced to it. Right. Okay. The similarities are there. The only, pro the only thing that's different now 
is the fact rather than take something and let it go you get rid of them and nothing's ever found now here's a man from costa rica or, or timbuktu that really nobody cares about just like I in fact it. just like mr kelly said he says hey when you're nobody you're nobody nobody cares so you disappear you're a transient or you're a bum or you're an alcoholic I cared a lot for of people him. think nobody ever cares i cared for him i bought him clothes i treated him very very good have you seen Ben Fink around? No. He, I told him not to ever come back on the property. But he, he was normally a regular around town. And you know but, what? But he's lived in, in Marysville if he, before. If he had, uh, Dorothea, if he'd have been in Marysville, he'd have been arrested. That's how Ben was. You know how Ben was. No, he'd, I, I only he'd get drunk. for two months. He'd get drunk. He'd get a little, ah, he'd get a little goofy, right? Mm-hmm. And then usually end up getting arrested or taking a detox or something. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Gone. What am I to think? What am I to think after hearing this a year and following along, following along, watching, waiting, and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, I dig up a body in your backyard. Meanwhile, back at the coroner's office, they were all taking turns and working in shifts. They were trying to identify all seven victims and establish how they all died. The fourth body was an adult male with four tattoos, which are easily identifiable. These markings belonged to 55-year-old Ben Fink. Pathologists were only able to lift fingerprints off of two of the bodies, which one was female and one was male. Military records confirmed that the female victim was Dorothy Miller and the male victim was Bert Montoya. I think that if Dorothea Guente had a motive for killing Alberto, it was that he knew too much and that he knew too many people that he could report that this was done. Soon, the names of the remaining victims are added to the list. James Gallup, Leona Carpenter, Vera Faye Martin, and Betty Palmer. The seven bodies have been identified but cause of death cannot be confirmed. Still, there is a pattern. I had noticed that all the bodies that we were bringing up were uh, dressed in a particular way. Uh, They were uh, wrapped with a lot of duct tape, plastic, sheets. I put out a bulletin to all agencies asking if they'd had any bodies that were found in this similar manner. And shortly after I had put it out, Sutter County Homicide detectives got a hold of me and said, yeah, you know, in 1986, we had a body found. When speaking to the other county about the body that was found, it was identified as 77-year-old Everson, which was the fiancé of Dorothea. After Everson's body was found, she was officially charged for murder. On June 19, 1990, Dorothea's order to stand trial was on nine counts of murder. These nine counts included Dorothea's boyfriend, Everson, who was 77, as well as eight tenants who lived at the boarding home, Ruth, who was 61, Leona, who was 78, Bert, who was 51, Dorothy, who was 64, Ben, who was 55, James, who was 62, Vera, who was 64, and Betty, who was 78. Oh, wow. When you were saying, like, their ages and 
I didn't really realize how old they are, but that it makes so much sense as to why she was able to take advantage of them because, um, you know, they're very vulnerable for their age and also like their addictions and just the things that they're going through. It, it really does make sense to why she thought that she could get away with it and just keep doing it over and over again. Like she had an actual pattern that she would do. Exactly. For all of these people, it was more along the lines of, you know, they're older, they're in this boarding home, they don't really have a lot of family left because they are older, or they all have had addictions or mental illnesses that kind of categorized them as unstable, binging, you know, going out for however long, you know, so most people probably wouldn't even go out to look for these because they are in a boarding home. According to investigators, most of her victims had been drugged until they overdosed. Dorothea then wrapped them in bedsheets and plastic lining before dragging them to open pits in the backyard for burial. Fast forward to February 9th, 1993. Now this is about five years after the first body was uncovered at Dorothea's boarding home. This is also when the murder trial started. There were delays that have slowed down the case for the last two years. Now, these delays included a change of venue, and that hearing moved the trial to Monterey County because the amount of publicity in Sacramento she was getting. The prosecution produced testimony from 156 witnesses and more than 3,000 exhibits. No one actually testified to seeing Dorothea bury and kill anyone. And in all of the deaths except for Ruth's, there was no clear cause. Because the coroner cannot determine the cause of death doesn't mean we can't classify a death as a homicide. And obviously, since these people were buried, many of them were bound, wrapped. You know, it was pretty obvious they didn't dig holes and jump in themselves. There was a reason they were in these these graves and someone else had to be involved. The defense attorney who was representing Dorothea did not deny that she was stealing her tenants' benefits. They also did not deny Dorothea burying her victims in her garden. Now, despite the presence of the same drug that was inserted in all of her victims, the drug was Dalmain, and all of the bodies had this specific drug inside of them. The defense attorney argued that it was not the cause of death. Now, Dalmain is typically prescribed for insomnia, but it could cause paranoia, suicide ideation, impaired memory, judgment, coronation, and if you combine it with other substances like alcohol, it could slow your breathing down and lead to death. Does that sound familiar? Ruth. That became really critical during the trial because the defense was trying to portray that these people died of natural causes. Um, and indeed, they, were, they had every illness you could name. So if you can't prove cause of death, can you prove murder? Their point of view was that um, they just simply died and then she buried them and continued to, to collect their checks. In reality, when you think of it, forgery and impersonation that charge is way less than murder, obviously. Yeah, I mean, murder is the ultimate crime. So anything that's not that 
is going to be a better charge than murder. Exactly. And without the cause of death, you couldn't really say that Dorothea herself drugged these people. And, you know, she's an older woman. So how did she drag them by herself? Like, it was a harder case to prove without the cause of death. And that was her, like, a scapegoat. Well, yes, I stole their name. I stole their check. I buried them because I didn't know where else to, to go. I couldn't report them because if I did, I would lose this money. But I didn't kill them. On July 15th, 1993, this is when the jury goes into deliberation without hearing any testimony from Dorothea herself. Dorothea Pointy did not take the stand. John O'Mara was a very good, very tenacious prosecutor, and Dorothea Pointy would be no match for him on the stand. From July 15th to August 26th, 1993, this is 43 days, which was the longest trial deliberation in California history at the time. The jury announces that they finally have a verdict. Out of nine counts of murder, she was convicted on three of them. Four of those counts, which were four bodies and victims out of her yard, uh, would go 11 to 1. That is 11 guilty, one not guilty. Uh, two of the cases would evenly split. The jury found Dorothea guilty of first-degree murder in the deaths of Ben Fink and Dorothy Miller. They convicted her of second-degree murder in the death of Leona Carpenter, and the judge declared a mistrial on the other six counts, including those related to Ruth and Bert. On October 13, 1993, Dorothea was sentenced to life in prison without parole. In fact, she was sentenced to two lifetimes without parole and then an additional 25 to life on the other three counts. After Dorothea's case, Social Security decided to tighten up those regulations and they prescribed a national database which was set up for all applicants to keep better track of their whereabouts. Judy, on the other hand, which was that street counselor who was helping Bert, she told everyone she had to quit her job because she couldn't take another case like this. Ruth's son stated, I was having a very hard time finding out that Dorothea did murder my mom. Personally, I wasn't able to work anymore as a street counselor. I did stay for another six months, but I no longer had that type of enthusiasm for it. Even now, there's times coming home from work, I think of going to see mom. And then I remember, no, she's not there. When you think of a mass murder, you don't think of a grandmotherly type of uh, lady. Um, she appeared more like somebody that uh, would be baking cookies for the neighborhood children. If the police hadn't discovered bodies, she would have continued to um, kill and uh, cash checks. I think that um, she definitely got what uh, she deserved. And there are people still today that I run into that still shake their head and just in disbelief and want to just tell me, you know, I don't, I don't know. Did she really do that? And of course, my answer was yes. She did every one of them. Hopefully, hopefully she won't live much longer, and then she'll she'll meet her maker. 
her punishment is still coming. Now, at the time of the documentary that was playing, Dorothea was still incarcerated. However, she passed away on March 27th, 2011 in Chowchilla at the Central California Women's Facility. She passed away from natural causes and she was only 82. And that's it. That's all I got. Damn. I was not expecting her in the beginning. I genuinely was not expecting it. I was like, oh my gosh, she's so nice. She's bringing in all these people. Exactly. Not. Not. (laughs) And another thing that was kind of surprising for me, when you think about it, she outlived all of her victims. Her oldest victim was 78. She was 82. And yeah, I mean, that's so unfortunate because we hear cases like this all the time, but it's like, it just sucks. That sucks. I hope, I hope this case was kind of like, I, I like I said, it was a slow burn. I didn't want you guys to think it was Dorothea at first because I was like, I want you to think she's a great person when in fact, she's a murderer. She murdered people. A liar. A manipulator. A con artist. A con. That's such a good word. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for doing this for us. On our one year anniversary. Hey. One year anniversary, and you guys are tired of listening to me. (laughs) See you next week. Bye.